Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast, and this is our third attempt at recording this podcast. Maybe you will actually hear this one. Maybe it will see the light of day, hopefully. Uh, I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Vance Pittman. And here is the thing. I've just figured it out. Uh, he serves in one of the most difficult places uh, as a church planter in, well, at least in North America, one of the most difficult places, known as Sin City, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, Hope Church. So it maybe maybe there are... Maybe there are spiritual forces at work here. I, I don't. I don't know. I've, I have yet to experience something like this. I've experienced a lot of things. We've done. I don't know, 400 and some episodes on this podcast and that many on uh, new churches, and I don't think I've ever experienced that. So, welcome, uh, Vance Pittman. Hey, man, it's great to be here, and I'll go ahead and help you up front know that when you're from Las Vegas, it's Las Vegas, Nevada, not Nevada. And that's the first thing they teach you when you get here. Really? It is an honor to be able to join you today on the podcast. I'm really (laughs) thankful to, to be able to do this. Well, uh, you know, we're so, so grateful to have you here. Um, tell us a little bit more about, uh, what it was like to plant a church in Nevada, Nevada. There you go. Now you got it. Uh, <laughs> I, um, yeah, of all the places in the world, I never thought I would live. This is, this is probably the top of the list. I mean, I grew up in North Alabama. So where I'm from, people don't go to Las Vegas and if they do, they don't tell anybody. Um, I always joke and tell people that where I'm from, people don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from here. It's like real yeah. close, but, uh, yeah, God called us out here 20 years ago, actually, um, this Christmas will be our 20th Christmas in Las Vegas. And we came to a city that at that time was one of the fastest growing cities in North America. It's still booming. Over a million people have moved here since I've lived here. Um, but it was a city that was 95% non-Christian, non-evangelical, unchurched. And we had the opportunity to come and join in God's activity in the city. And over now 20 years, we've seen God do beyond anything we could have ever imagined. We have seen thousands of people come to faith in Christ here in Las Vegas. We just launched our 68th church plant out of our church uh, here in the Western United States. We got a real passion to multiply the church in the West. And then we're engaged on several continents around the world, joining in God's activity. And so we're just, man, unbelievably blessed here. And what God's done um, has far exceeded anything I ever thought would happen here in Las Vegas. So, so talk to me a little bit more about um, 68 church plants. That's, that is insane. How has that occurred? Like, tell me about the the yeah. first one and then how it kind of ramped up from there or any milestones that, that you hit along the way. Yeah. So when we came here, we knew that one church couldn't reach a city by itself. It didn't matter how fast a church was growing or how many people you were reaching. When you're, when you're talking about the lostness of a city like Las Vegas, where, you know, a city of now 2.2 million people, over 92% non-Christian, you know, one church can't reach that population by itself. So we knew we had to multiply churches. So when we came, you know, we thought, I mean, I'd never been a part of a church that had planted a church. So we had this big dream, hey, let's plant 10 churches out of our church. And we thought that was like climbing Mount Everest because, again, I'd never been a part of a church that had planted a church. And 
had not really heard much about church planting when I was sent out here and had not seen a lot of expressions of that in the Western United States, particularly in the, the tribe that, that I'm a part of denominationally. Um, so yeah, when we came, we thought let's, we, we, we would plant one. And so we started that way trying to get to that number 10. And we, the first one we launched, we were a year and a half old and we were, we had grown as a church to about 300 people. We brought in a, a team and we let them do life with us in our church for several months. We let them build relationships. And then we said, Hey, anybody wants to go with them? We're going to start a new church. And uh, about 40 people out of our church went with them. And to be honest with you, as a church planter that had been out here a year and a half and seen the church go to 300 people, when 40 left, I panicked and thought, what in the world have we asked God to do? Because it wasn't the 40 I would have picked. It was the best we had. It was the ones that were serving and setting up and leading small groups. And But we sent that first one out. And the weekend after we sent out those 40 people with that church planting team, uh, the next weekend, we had the largest attendance and offering we'd had in the one and a half year old short history of our church. And we just learned a valuable lesson early on. And that is you can't outgive God. We'll do what he said and seek first the kingdom being expanded in cities and not try to focus on growing our church that he would he would build his church if we would seek first the kingdom. And so from that, that cultivated a passion in our church to just multiply the church and then God expanded that a few years ago. God really gave us a vision to, 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 to reach the Western United States. There, there are 75 million people who live in the mountain and Pacific time zones in the U.S. We began to pray about what would it take to reach 1% of the West in 15 years, which is 750,000 people. And to do that, we need to start 300 churches that plant 10 churches each. And each of those churches reach 250 people for Christ. And that's 750,000. And so we've asked God in 15 years to let us plant, uh, the next 15 years to let us plant 300 new churches. And we just launched number 68 uh, just a couple of weekends ago. And we've got others in the pipeline right now, but that's the real aim. We want to see the kingdom of God expanded in the Western United States so that that can be a launching pad for the nations. And so this church planting thing is just a part of who we are. We've now sent out of our fellowship between four and 500 people that had came into our church and became a part of our church, were discipled in our church, and now been sent out with teams to go and be involved in planting churches up and down the West. That That's an amazing legacy. You know, we, we talk about, um, you know, your legacy as a leader being other leaders or your legacy as a pastor being other pastors, your legacy as a, even a volunteer being other volunteers, but to see you guys uh, put that into practice uh, to see it scale and actually have those stories is absolutely amazing. Um, so who, who are you currently learning from? Great question. And I'm going to answer it with kind of three categories of people that I learned from. First off, and, and this is kind of a in vogue thing to say, but I like to learn from people who finished well. And so that's actually people that are already in heaven. They're with the Lord. So I do a lot of reading and a lot of studying of people who finished well. I think one of the great tragedies of the Christian movement in America today is that uh, a lot of guys are writing books that have just started in ministry. And they're writing a lot of theory, but they're not writing a lot of proven practice and principle that's been actually fleshed out. And when I read guys like A.W. Tozer or Andrew Murray or even somebody that was a personal mentor who's with the Lord now named Clyde Cranford, when I read their books, 
I'm reading the writings of men and women and leaders who lived out a gospel passion um, over the centuries, or excuse me, over the decades. And maybe some of them now have been off the scene for over a century, but I'm, I'm able to glean from them that have finished well, because everybody that's in leadership, particularly in spiritual leadership, they want to finish well. They, they want to end well. And so people like that, that I'm learning from. So the, the top of the list for me on that category would be A.W. Tozier, Andrew Murray, Clyde Cranford. Uh, those are guys that I'm actively reading. Some of them, I read some of their books every year that I read. A second category for me would be people from a different context. Um, I grew up in the Bible Belt in America and for the last 20 years have been involved in the West. And in moving to the West, man, I learned a ton from leaders in a different context. I had always learned from leaders in my context, and that limits your perspective and in your ability to grow as a leader. Another arena is those in the, that are leading globally. Um, to, to engage with leaders outside of my context, either in my own country or around the world, I've learned some, some of that from global leaders that I would have never learned from leaders in my own sphere, my own context. So I like to, to learn from people that have finished well, people from a different context, and then thirdly, from people who are doing it, practitioners. Uh, some examples of that right now in my life to, from two extremes. One would be a man named Chris Hodges, Church of the Highlands in Alabama. Some of the processes that they have in place for assimilation and membership, uh, the excellence with which they do that is something that, that our church is actively learning right now. But then uh, another uh, side of the equation for me would be a man like Jim Cimbala. I'm still learning from, from Pastor Jim and the, the desperation for God in leadership and the things that, that have really shaped a lot of who we are here at Hope Church in Las Vegas has been what we've learned from a practitioner like Jim Cimbala there in, in New York City of Brooklyn. And then also from church planters, uh, because we're so engaged in planting, I'm around planters all the time and they're starters, they're entrepreneurs, they're, they have a passion. And so being around them constantly is inspiring me to learn. So those are kind of the three categories, people who finished well, people from a different context, and then people who are doing it. You know, I, I would uh, ask you a follow-up question, and I want to hone in on that middle group, um, people out of your context. So, you know, you talked about moving from uh, the South and the Bible Belt out to uh, Las Vegas. What What is one thing that you would like pastors in the South to know uh, or appreciate about you know, the, the West, I guess. Uh, and then what is one thing that, you know, you, you would be like, man, I wish I could expose, you know, these pastors, other pastors in Las Vegas or other pastors in the West or some other church planning guys. I wish I could expose them to this, you know, from the, the South. Like if you were able to transplant, you know, uh, one to the other, what would, yeah. what would you say? Great question. Um, and before I even answer that, let me say one thing about what it's changed. I'll give you an example of how it changed me personally. Um, you know, I grew up in the Bible Belt, and that's where I started in ministry. My first decade of ministry was in the Bible Belt. And uh, so I was always uh, preaching with a level of assumption about the presuppositional understanding of the people that I was talking to. 
I could assume that the people I was talking to had grown up in vacation Bible schools and Sunday school classes, and they knew the stories from the Bible. So when I'm teaching and preaching in the Bible Belt, I could reference Jonah and just blow by it because they knew who Jonah was. When I got to Las Vegas and started preaching, I had to, I had to realize that, man, they didn't – a lot of these people had never heard any of those stories. I couldn't just reference Nehemiah or Jonah or Moses. I had to tell their stories because they just didn't know who they were. And so I had to learn quickly that I'm living in Las Vegas now, the Western United States. A lot of people call America now post-Christian. What a lot of people don't realize is America's West Coast is still largely a pre-Christian context. They've never been exposed to the gospel. They have access, but they've just never been exposed. So that's one of the ways it changed me personally is it purified my preaching to really find out what the text says and how to unpack that in a bottom shelf way that brings people along and lays a foundation. Every pastor in the Bible Belt uh, could experience is when God called me to Las Vegas, I saw myself as a pastor and I saw the focus of my life being on the church. And it wasn't until God brought me to Las Vegas that I realized that the real passion and the heart of God was for the gospel and the kingdom to expand in the city. And the church is simply a temporary tool established by Jesus for the expansion of the kingdom in cities and nations. And so when I, when I was pastoring in the Bible Belt, I never thought about my city. Hmm. As long as the church was doing well, as long as we had a good attendance, good offering, decisions made, I was fine. I never thought about the implications in a city until I got here began to engage a city with the gospel because I didn't have a church. So we had to start with a city and see the city engage with the gospel. And what that did is it produced a level of messiness because the people that we were leading the Christ, I mean, for example, Sunday, we had roughly 3,500 people in our worship services, but the vast majority of them are first generation Christians. So there's a messiness to that. I feel like I'm sometimes living in the book of first Corinthians. Uh, because there's every kind of issue you can imagine in the people's lives in our church because it hasn't been sanitized by generational implications of the gospel. Um, and there's a messiness and a freshness to that that's beautiful. The thing that I, 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 I'm grateful for what's happened in the Bible Belt uh, that I miss is what I just said, the generational impact of the gospel. Uh, to see generations of people that have come to know Christ and you begin to see parents and their children and their grandchildren who followed in faith. And because of that, there's a depth of theological understanding that in my context simply does not exist because there just hasn't been the generational implications of the gospel. So that's just one. Sm I mean, there's a lot we could talk about about that particular question, but. But just two examples of, of the difference in, in the ministry context. Man, that's good. Uh, you know, I have I've had the, the pleasure of uh, serving outside the Bible Belt, but I've never uh, I've never served out west. And so I, I, I never really thought about the pre-Christian context. You know, because in, in my mind, I would think, well, a lot of these people, you know, moved from the east to the west. But that's that's not exactly true either. If you look at the demographic makeup of of who's out there. Well, and that's true. Some of them did. But some of them did so long ago. All the New England states are now post-Christian. Right. 
largely becoming post-Christian. But in the Western United States, historically, it's the only place where there's yet to be a real gospel movement take place. Um, And that's why I believe if there is hope for another gospel movement in the United States of America, I I believe it is the Western United States. Because movement, as you study gospel movement globally, movement typically always happens in more of a pre-Christian context. And that's why I think the West is really the last hope for a true movement of the gospel, which is one of the reasons why we've leaned in so heavily to this church planting strategy, because we think we're, we're sowing the seed for what could be another great movement of God in America. You can't create movement, but you can, you can put your sails up so that should the wind of the Holy Spirit of God choose to blow— you're ready for the movement. And we think obeying the principles of multiplying the church is sowing the seed for that movement. Uh, so good. So what what obstacles are you currently facing in, in leading your team right now? Yeah, uh, in leading our team, uh, we've been in a, a season of growth uh, over the last few years. And, you know, seasons of growth lead to seeing things with fresh eyes. And so when, you know, people call it, you know, growth problems and, and they say, yeah, they're, 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 they're growth problems, but they're great problems. But the word great doesn't remove the word problem. Uh, It's still a problem that you have to solve, you have to fix. And so with growth comes this fresh set of eyes and it's made us look at several things. For example, uh, we've recently restructured our entire staff team Uh, as our church grew uh, and we eclipsed another growth barrier. The structure that worked for us five or seven or 10 years ago is not a structure that was working well for us. And so we just basically put all the, all of our staff team, all of our leadership team, even volunteers on a board. And we started with a white page and we six different teams. We now have four teams and people that used to be on this team are now on a different team. And it's restructured our whole team. And, and out of that, I've just learned, man, don't be a slave to structure. Don't be a slave to job titles and job descriptions. We've had, we have some people that were on our team, have been on our team for 10 years doing one job that with our restructure are now doing a completely different job on our team and doing it very well. Their strengths allowed them for a season to be great in this role, but now we needed their strengths in another role as we restructured our whole team. Uh, another that's fascinating can i let me let me ask you a question about that because you know i don't know if you've uh i know you're a reader but there's a a book called the leadership code uh and in it it talks about you know the higher you go in leadership like so if you get a director level or higher a ministry director level or higher uh in our context 67 percent of what it takes to be a good leader is transferable from position to position regardless of of what it is is that something that you've seen played out i would say 100 percent. i think that um that, that there there are strengths that once you get to certain levels of leadership there's some core competencies that every one of them need to share and that they have in common which makes it um which makes it a possibility to take somebody in one seat and put them in another seat because at that level, you're asking them to do the same things. You're now just asking them to do that in a different area of leadership, a different area of, of ministry. Uh, for example, on our team, we had a guy that for 
the last 10 years has been leading us in small groups. Um, but we, our, our, our church had grown to the point where the, what we really needed in that seat was a little bit more of a visionary uh, and not as much of a, um, uh, a strategy developer. But what we did, what we needed on a, in another seat in our mobilization for, for global engagement, we needed somebody who could help us build strategies and systems um, because I'm, I'm, I'm as much missionary as I am pastor. I'm casting vision all the time for the nations. We didn't need the strong visionary leadership, but we needed the systems and the strategies and leadership and small groups has now taken that same director level leadership uh, in leading teams and leading people and is building those systems in another area. So I would say compl- I completely agree with that. So. Uh, I, I did interrupt you. I wanted you to continue, but you, you were talking about the, the restructuring and seeing those people thriving in those new positions. Um, what else have you kind of learned in that process of reorganization? Uh, we also have um, looked at our membership processes. We have been developed. Yeah, that's part of what we were learning from people like Chris Hodges and Church of the Highlands is just taking another hard look. We've got a a membership process that we've been using with some small tweaks since the day we started. But the day we started, we, you know, had 200 people in a worship service and now we're looking at 3,500 people in a worship service. And so those processes just needed to change based on volume, the number of people that are coming through that process. We needed some new processes uh, and, and the productivity of those processes, the stickiness of those uh, now that the church has changed, we're used to, it could be very sticky just because me or a few other key pastors on our team could personally walk with people in the church now at the size where we can't necessarily do that. So we needed to strengthen those those core processes. And then uh, another thing with that is I, I planted Hope Church. I planted it now what, almost 20 years ago. Uh, but the reality is I'm 48 years old. I will not pastor Hope Church in the future, as long as I have pastored Hope Church in the past. Uh, I think I'm pastoring my last church, but I've been here 20 years. I don't think I'm going to be here another 20 years. I'm 48 years old. So uh, I think um, we've had to start thinking about what does it look? Some of these processes were very me-centric, and we've had to start to think about what does this look like for Hope Church beyond me? So we're laying foundation now in our processes to say, to make sure that this is built in such a way that it's the, the scripture says the plans of the Lord are from generation to generation. And so if we've really tapped into what he's doing, it won't just be built around one generation. It'll be built for generations to come. So those are some of the challenges as a planter and a founding pastor who's put 20 years in a place to begin to start thinking now before it's next month or next year. A, a decade from now, 15 years from now, when I hand the baton, that we've built processes that are for life beyond my personal involvement here. That's good. That's good. Okay. So uh, I want to ask you a, a, a more practical question that um, that listeners may want to know, given everything that you've talked about up to this point, because it sounds like it would take a lot of time to do all this stuff. But what are... What are one or two things other than spiritual disciplines? Uh, what are one or two things that you have to do daily to stay sharp as a leader? Okay. Um, and I know you said other than spiritual disciplines, um, but I just have to say this. 
uh, and I'll talk about this if we get to one of the other questions. I'll talk about this a little bit more. But um, I mean, as a as a Christ follower, abiding in Christ, um, you just can't say that enough. That that everything we are, everything we do, has to come out of the overflow of intimacy with Him. Um, and so that daily time alone with Him. Um, is just a lesson that I have to learn over and over and over again. I know you said, you know, beyond spiritual disciplines, but, right. but I think that's part of the problem is that we've reduced that a little bit to spiritual disciplines. Um, and, and Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say apart from me, you can't do big things or spiritual things. He said, apart from me, you can't do anything. So today, if I'm going to be the husband, father, friend, pastor, neighbor, it all rises and falls out of that. So obviously that that's a given. Um, Two, a couple other things I would say is number one, you have, I have to prioritize the important over the urgent. Uh, when you're in leadership, the demands of leadership, all, there is always waving a flag in front of you that needs your attention, that needs your investment immediately. And if we're not careful, the urgent or the immediate always gets priority over the important. And so every day you have to make sure that you prioritize the important over the urgent. And I have to do that in, in a few areas. I have to do that in my family. I have to do that in my work. I have to do that in relationships. So <laughs> you have to prioritize – for me daily, I have to prioritize important over urgent. Um, another thing, and this is, is, is a little bit off, off the uh, – maybe the path you want me to be on. But for <laughs> me, I, I, I'm a foodie. So I, I, my executive pastor, we do life together. He's my best friend. Uh, he eats to live. I live to eat. So I, I, I got to make sure that every day I, I incorporate that into my life. I, I, it's just something that I, I enjoy. And so eating is, is part of my every day. I got to put this in. And then I'll give you one more. It's, it's the principle of exercise slash rest. Um, Obviously, exercise is not every day, but daily. I think for me as a leader, th there's just something that happens physiologically if we're not rightly exercising and rightly making sure. I just did a few episodes ago on a podcast that I do, one on just rest, because I think we leaders live off the adrenaline of leadership. And if we're not careful, we don't build intentional rest into our daily, weekly, monthly rhythms. So that's a couple of things I would say to prioritize the important of the urgent. Uh, for me, I got to eat and then exercise and rest being built in. Mm, that's good. That's good. All right. Uh, I want to get to what uh, leadership in your home looks like. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Todd, that's a great question, too, because, um, you know, it's funny as leaders, we put all this time, energy and effort into the areas of leadership. And then often, uh, you know, in the home, we, we don't we don't um, give as much time, energy and effort that gets our leftover. Uh, and for me uh, in my home, I'm not uh, ours is not as formal. It's not as structured as some of the other areas of leadership. But. When I think about leadership in my home, it really revolves around four key words. And the first word is the word team, team. And by that, I mean that my wife and I lead together as a team. I know that God in his sovereignty and by his design has given us complementary roles. Um, but one of the classic passages of scripture that defines 
the complementary roles that we have as husbands and wives is in Ephesians 5. And everybody usually jumps into that passage at verse 22, wives be subject to your husbands. But it, they, they don't read verse 21, which is really the verse that everything after that, 22, says be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so what I've been called to as a husband, what my wife has been called to as a wife, is that we, full of the Holy Spirit, are to live in Christ-like submission to each other. And so as we live that out, we lead together as a team in our household. Obviously, she's submissive to me as the spiritual leader of our family. But then in Christ-like submission, I'm lovingly leading, and, and together we work as a team. And I think that is so important, especially in light of the contemporary conversation today about roles of men and women in the home and in the church. I just think it's important to know that, that, that we're a team. Uh, in the Old Testament the book of Genesis, the Bible says that God created woman to be the helper what most people don't realize is that doesn't mean the associate. The word helper that's used in Genesis to describe the woman being created is used 20 other times in Scripture. It's the Hebrew word ezer konegdo. Everywhere else it's used, it's used to describe God himself. The only place in the entire Old Testament it describes a human being is in the role of the woman as the wife and the helper which means this is not an associate role. This is a life-giving, sustaining role. So first of all, in my home, it's a team. We're in it together, uh, my wife and I, and then our children. As we engage in what God's called us to, our kids have bought into and shared roles of leadership in our home. So team, that's the first word. Second word is transparency, transparency. Uh, Todd, I don't know about the, the home you grew up in. I grew up in a home. My mom and dad were believers, first-generation Christians. My dad was a pastor. Godly example, great home, no regrets at all. But I grew up in a generation where you just didn't talk about stuff. Um, we just didn't have conversations in my home growing up about certain things. And my wife and I, as a teen, decided that we wanted our home to be a place of transparency, which meant open, authentic conversation. Nothing was out of bounds. Our kids could talk about anything at any time, uh, any question that they could talk about. And so we just tried to create a level of transparency. Uh, and, and we tried to demonstrate that by being real transparent. We wanted them to know we weren't perfect. We'd made mistakes. This is where we blew it. And we tried to let them learn from our scars and the mistakes that we'd made. So transparency. The third word is the word trust. Trust. Uh, I believe there needs to be clear communication in the home regarding expectations, priorities, and boundaries. But then when that communication's in place, there's got to be a level of trust. And I think too often in the home, we do stuff based on distrust rather than on trust. Distrust is contractually how you do relationship. But the relationships in the family, those are covenant-based relationships. And those are not based on distrust. They're based on trust. And with trust comes loyalty to one another. And so trust is a very important thing in our home and in how we've tried to lead as homes, where we were clear in our expectations and boundaries and priorities, but then we established a level of trust where you were trusting the other people to live out uh, as, as clearly had been communicated. And then the fourth word is the word time. Time. Somebody asked me, or I heard somebody ask one time, how do you spell love? And they said, you spell it T-I-M-E. And so in our home, we tried to make sure that with each new rhythm, I mean, we had children who were preschoolers and then elementary school and then high school and 
then college. And now I've got my home. Three of my children are married. One of them uh, is still at the, in the home as a teenager. I have two grandchildren. And the bottom line for me on this question is, uh, Todd, that there are a lot of platforms that I can live out God's call to spiritual leadership on. But there's only one family that qualifies me for every one of those platforms. Mm. The, the scripture uses in First Timothy the home as one of the key qualifiers for spiritual leadership. There's a thousand ways I can live out God's call on my life to spiritual leadership, but there's only one family that qualifies me for any one of those platforms. And so this thing of spiritual leadership in the home is, is critical. That's so good. All right. So uh, you mentioned you you have children that are, are young adults now, and I'm sure you've seen yourself uh, in some of those. But if you could go back and uh, talk to your 20 year old self, you know, what would you what advice would you give to him about uh, leadership? Yeah, I would say uh, the first thing I would say is that the primary call on your life is not to ministry. It's to intimacy. For the first decade of my Christian journey and my spiritual leadership, I totally missed that. I really thought that the primary call was what Jesus wanted me to do for him rather than him wanting me to be with him so that he could then do something through me. And so this idea that the primary call is not ministry, it's intimacy, that everything Jesus desires to do through my life, he'll do out of the overflow of intimacy is so, so, so important. And honestly, for the first decade of my Christian journey, man, I just ran past that. Uh, I saw the, the the quiet time, the devotional time as a box I checked in the morning so I could get on to doing what I needed to do and did not understand the significance of what it meant to abide in Christ. So that's the first one. Then leadership in the church. The church is not really the goal. The kingdom being expanded in cities and nations, that's the goal. Every church Paul planted in the New Testament is dead and gone, but the kingdom of God is alive and well. And so if I give all my energy and effort to investing just in a church, I'm investing in something that is not going to last forever. But if I leverage that church for the sake of the kingdom being expanded in cities and nations, now I'm involved in something that's eternal. The only thing that is in heaven is the kingdom of God. Uh, the fourth one I would say is that together is always better. Leadership can be lonely, but leadership should never be done alone. Paul, one of the great leaders in the New Testament, I find it interesting that almost every time you read the name Paul in the Bible, the next word is almost always and, because it was never Paul by himself. It was Paul and Timothy, Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and John Mark, whoever it is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was Paul in the group, but I wish I would have learned earlier this thing of team leadership. I grew up in the model of church where the senior pastor was the guy and everybody else was hired to carry out his vision. Right. Not understanding team ownership and team leadership early cost me greatly. And I wish I'd learned earlier that together is always better. And the last thing is that the joy is in the journey. As leaders, we are often driven by climbing the next mountain, accomplishing the next milestone. We get so focused on the destination that we forget a lot of what God desires to do in us and through us will happen along the journey. And so just enjoying the journey, not just focusing on the destination, but enjoying the journey of leadership 
is something that I think is critical. Well, I do want to key back in on uh, the first thing that, that you were talking about, and, and that is the the intimacy with God. You mentioned growing up in the South. I did too. Um, I came to know Christ in a personal way during uh, a revival service, um, like a lot of people probably in the South. Yep. Uh, and, you know, in part, uh, I don't know how much of that was uh, there, there was a fear factor there. There was all these things there. Um, and, and so uh, I know you talked about the, uh, the, the burden really of living for Jesus versus, yeah. uh, how Jesus can live through you. Um, so I, I do want to point people to, uh, you, you have written, a, a book. This is your first book, which is amazing because yep. you're 48 years old. You've planted 68 churches. You've done a lot of ministry. You probably had a lot of opportunities to write a lot of different kind of books. So why, why did you write this one? Uh, and in answering that, I would love for you to to just unpack that a little bit more um, because I want our listeners to hear that. I, I've had an opportunity to. Um, to hear a lot about this through just our conversation now, but even before um, we got on the air. And I just want people to, to hear that from your heart. Yeah. Uh, the reason that I waited to write was actually intentional. You're right. I've had a lot of people pushing me for a lot of time to to write. I just became convicted that, that too many times we write too early. Uh, too many guys are popping up a church plant, getting a thousand people, writing a book, and it's theory. It's not proven. And I wanted to really be at a place in ministry where I knew that God had given me something that that I had to say. I wanted to make sure this legacy of content was was in place. And so uh, after you know being here in Las Vegas for 20 years and working through this content, um, and, and dealing with the subject matter, God just has really gotten me to a place where it's really our paradigm of what a disciple is here at Hope Church. And it was born out of my own journey of, of, of coming to Christ like you in the Bible Belt. And for the first decade of my Christian life, I really thought the objective was for me to live the Christian life. And so there were the do's and there were the don'ts. You know, you do all these things. You don't do all these things. Now, living in Las Vegas and growing up in Alabama, I've discovered that the don't list changes depend on where you live because <laughs> there's stuff on the don't list in Alabama that's not on the don't list in Las Vegas for Christians. But I was so consumed with the do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules and regulations that I felt like the most defeated Christian in the world. And I was even pastoring churches, uh, but I, I felt like a fraud. I would read verses in the Bible, like the verse where Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Uh, and then he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you'd asked me to pick three words that describe my Christian experience, I would never have said rest, easy, and light. Right. I would have said work, hard, and heavy. That's what Christianity was to me. Because again, I thought Jesus saved me. Now I'm to live for Jesus. What I discovered is Jesus didn't save me so that I could live for him. He saved me so that he could live through me. The gospel is not just that Jesus' death is my death. The gospel is it examines what the life of Christ in me looks like. The best place to learn that is the gospels. 
So we spent over a year in the Gospels examining the life of Christ and walked away with the conclusion that the life of Jesus was all about relationships. Jesus's life, every story in the Gospels can fall into one of three boxes, Jesus and his relationship to the Father, Jesus and his relationship to the disciples, or Jesus and his relationship with lost people. Every story in the Gospels falls into one of those three categories. So what was Jesus's life? Relationships to the Father, to the disciples, to the world. So what does it look like now for Jesus to live in and through me? Same thing. Intimate love relationship with the Father that spills into a fellowship relationship with his disciples that overflows into relationships with people that don't know God at all so that they can come to know him through our lives. So the life of a Jesus follower, this unburdened life is allowing Christ to live his life through us and enjoying the freedom of those relationships of abiding in Christ connecting in community and sharing in the mission. Man, well, just thank you for uh, for sharing your story with us. Thank you for uh, sharing this book. It's called Unburdened, Stop Living for Jesus so that Jesus can live through you. Uh, it's available in January 21st of 2020, uh, shortly after this podcast is released. Um, but more than anything, uh, just thank you for the conversation today. Um, it's always good. I know when I have a good podcast because uh, I learned something <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, I feel a connection. And so uh, just really, really appreciate your heart for leadership development and leadership pipeline and uh, church planting and just the heart to see that legacy, you know, th- thrive through not only the 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 churches that you plant, but the churches that will be planted through the churches you plant. That's a, that's a a true, true legacy. And so thank you very much for sharing that with us and uh, inspiring and encouraging us today. So listeners, if you would uh, please hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. And if you would like to hear more from Vance Pittman, you can check out his podcast uh, on iTunes as well. Thanks for listening.